You belong here. We are in a series of messages. You belong here. Part two. Last week we opened up this series looking at John chapter one. Today we're going to continue the series looking at John chapter two. So take out your Bibles. If you've got a Bible, good, good old-fashioned paper Bible is my preference. You'll see that I have one here up on the stage with me. If you don't have a Bible, we are selling them for cost in our lobby here in North Attleboro. I want you to get into the Bible with us and underline and mark up and circle words. That's how you get to really dig deep into the scriptures. Next week, Sunday afternoon, we start our annual fasting and prayer campaign. We do this every January, end of January into February. And so here's the deal. Here's how that goes. Uh, you eat lunch after church on Sunday. We don't eat on Sunday night. We don't eat Monday or Tuesday and Wednesday. We don't eat breakfast. We eat lunch on Wednesday and we show up for first Wednesday. It's gonna be one of the most powerful first Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday things we've ever done in our history. It's gonna be great. Are you excited? How many of you are excited to not eat? I'm not. I'm, I'm willing to admit that, amen. I like food. But you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna pray for the people that we invite. We're gonna pray for them. And I, I just think that sometimes, you know, Jesus talks about that sometimes you just think that you need to fast and pray. You can't just pray. Amen, somebody? Amen. Some of you can't get over something, you, you need to fast and pray. There are some demons that can't be cast out except for fasting and praying. Amen. And so I want you to join us, even if you've never done this. Now, oh, by, by the way, if you have never done this before, maybe don't go gung-ho all in. Maybe do a 24-hour fast and then eat only, I would suggest something like plain yogurt and, I don't know, oatmeal or something like that. Something that's not enjoyable. That's the point, to deny yourself. Okay? <laughs> don't go blending up your steak dinner in a blender and drink it either, okay? Now, if you have dietary restrictions because of your doctor, you check with them first. We do not want you to harm your body. But we want you to do something that segregates this season, this time, from how you usually live to seek God and pray. And then Friends Day is the Sunday after that. Friends Day, inviting friends. Come for Friends Day, February 5th. It's, uh, I think it's Pro Bowl weekend. Nobody cares about the Pro Bowl. So invite your friends to church, amen? All right, so that's what we're doing. And we're doing this intentionally because I don't know about you, but people need Jesus. The world is crazy. I don't know what world you're looking at, but the world I'm looking at is not just crazy, it's crazy, crazy. And pretty soon we're gonna hit triple crazy. Threat level six crazy. And then, and then it's just a matter of time before the antichrist dictator beast shows up, one world government, one world economy, and you can't purchase and sell without his sign. And that's when we lift up our heads and we know that Jesus is coming back. So we gotta get busy, church. We gotta get busy. We gotta be serious about this. We don't want anybody to not know Jesus. And yes, people will say no, I get it. People say no to me all the time. Or they'll say, even worse, they'll say yes, which is really a no. I understand that. Don't give up, you invite, you pray. And please think about this too. Some of you have been praying for the same person for 30 years to come to church because they're related to you. Think of someone else. Invite them, but think of someone else. Someone you maybe never have thought about inviting. So we can have a bunch of people here on February 5th or whatever that day is, February 5th or 6th, and, and we will see them saved, born again, and go through the waters of baptism. 
By the way, baptism class, don't, don't forget about that too. You get baptized, I think today more than ever before, we gotta get baptized with pride. It's not a shameful thing. It's not an embarrassing thing. I'm prouder than ever to be a part of the family of God, I'll tell you that, I'll tell you that. I'm, I'm more happy, more, more jubilant over being a member of the family of God today than I ever have been in my life. Why, because the world is crazy, crazy. I wanna to talk to you about shame. Chapter two of John, no shame on me, part two, you belong here. This is a very familiar story. We're gonna stand and read the word of God if you don't mind, stand and read. If you can stand, please stand. You're gonna know this story right when we start reading it. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, his mother, the mother of Jesus, said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, why does, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. On the count of three, let's all say that phrase. One, two, three. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out. When the master of the feast tasted the water that now had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your voice. We thank you for the opportunity to inch closer to Jesus today. Help us, Lord, to have ears to hear, minds to receive, and hearts to receive the true word planted in us that would change us and transform us and make us more like Jesus. Help us to see him, him and him only. In his mighty name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Shame. Somebody say shame. shame. Shame is a serious problem. Believe it or not, I think that shame is the problem. Shame is a major issue we don't even realize, we don't even talk about it, nobody's talking about this issue. It's probably the issue that causes all the other issues in your life. There's two things about shame. You can cause someone shame or somebody can cause you shame. Anybody in this place ever been shamed by somebody else? Shamed by a friend, shamed by a stranger, shamed by somebody who said they would love you, then they departed from you, they abandoned you, they let you down, you've been shamed. Maybe you were fired, maybe you were let go, maybe you feel like you're shamed because you're getting, you're too young. Paul the Apostle says to Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you. In other words, don't let anybody shame you because you're young. I love the young people at Waters Church. I'm so thankful that this church is loaded with young people leading this church, growing this church, leading us in worship. Can we give some thanks for the young soldiers of Waters Church in this place? You're, the, you're not the future of the church. You are the church. But if you're not careful, you'll be shamed when you're young. And if you're not careful, you'll be shamed when you're old. Sometimes we shame people because they got gray hair. By the way, I got gray hair. That's why I keep my hair so closely shaved to the head. That's where it all is. It's all in this area. So where you see shaved hair in my head, you're just thinking, oh, that's the, that's the gray he's trying to hold, hide from everybody. Yeah, because that'll feel like shame. Someday when I'm brave enough, I'll grow it out and you'll see just how wise I am. Amen, somebody. Because gray hair is a sign of wisdom. Amen. 
Shame because you're a woman. Shame because you're a man. Today's generation is shame because you're a man. Shame because you're black. Shame because you're white. We're always in this, the the culture's in the business of shame. Shame because you're rich. Shame because you're poor. You see how we play these games? By the way, just wanna let you know there's one race. One race. We all have the same great, 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 granddaddies and grandmommies. Adam and Eve, we're all from Adam and Eve. If you don't think that, it's because you've been to public school, that's why. Or you've been to university where they take your brain out and replace it with jelly, that's what they do. We are all one race. Different shades of dirt. Because man comes from the dirt, amen? God made man from the dust of the earth. When you see different colors of skin, you're just seeing different shades of dirt. Some of us are like me. Some of us are different color one way or the other, but we're all one race. It's amazing how we'll make that color of one skin a source of shame. That's the world we live in. Because shame is the issue. Shame is the issue. I, I, I asked, somebody's been shamed in this house. I'm, I'm sure we all have our stories. I can, still, I can still remember one of the most shameful moments where I was shamed by somebody else 30 years ago. I was in fifth grade. What can happen in fifth grade? Lots can happen in fifth grade. And I'll never forget, I was pantsed in, the, in front of my entire fifth grade class. Pants. Everybody's, the whole class saw it. Shh, pants. You know what that means, right? Pantsed. You know what that means? Somebody has you to stand up, gets behind you, and just pulls your pants down. That's amazing how I can't even remember the person I was sitting next to or behind or in front of, but I can remember that moment 30 years later. Two things I learned from that day when I was pants in fifth grade. Two things I learned. Number one, always wear underwear. Number two, I learned that shame can stick. Turn to your neighbor and say, shame can stick. It can. Some of you are still trying to cover the shame of some broken relationship, some failed business venture, something that mom said or dad said, or maybe that they weren't even there and you're trying to cover the shame. This is our problem. The root of shame is another S word called sin. I know we don't want to talk about that because, you know, we want to feel good about ourselves, but the real problem is sin. Sin breeds shame. Sin breeds shame. If you got sin, you're going to have shame. You're either going to shame others or someone's going to shame you, or how about this one? You're going to shame yourself. Has anybody, shamed, has anybody ever been ashamed of themselves? The great comedian Sebastian Maniscalco makes a killing talking about this issue. Aren't you embarrassed? That's his whole shtick. Aren't you embarrassed? It's embarrassing what we do to ourselves, what we say. Has anybody ever told themselves? Has anybody ever said this to themselves? I can't believe I, I thought that. Has anybody ever done that? I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. You know what that is? Shame. The issue behind the issue is shame. And the issue behind shame is sin. Genesis chapter three, verse seven, after Adam and Eve eat that fruit, You know what it says? At that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly what? Next two words, everybody say it. Felt shame. No, 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 say those two words. One, two, three. Felt shame. They felt shame. Isn't it amazing how the Bible describes how they felt? 
They felt it. That's what sin does, it brings shame in here, in our hearts. And, and they felt the shame at their nakedness, and so they sewed fig leaves. This was their first attempt to fix what was broken. They sewed up some fig leaves and tried to cover themselves. That's what shame does. By the way, the last descriptor of humankind before sin entered the world, you gotta understand this, everything went to hell in Genesis chapter three. The reason why we are messed up and there's wars and fighting and racism and injustice all over the world is because of what happened six verses earlier in Genesis chapter three. But the last descriptor of Genesis chapter two, what God had intended for us in Genesis chapter two was this. Look at it with me, Genesis 2, 25. It says, the man and his wife were both naked and were what? Not ashamed. So not ashamed, Genesis 2, 2. Felt shame, Genesis 3. What was the difference? Sin. The issue behind the issue is shame, and the issue behind shame is sin. And so there's three effects of shame. I want you to write this down so I know you're getting it. Number one, shame keeps us sheltered. Shame keeps us trying to cover up what we are because we know we're not good enough. We all know we're not good enough. Or somebody shamed us when we were young, and if we're not careful, we will live our whole lives trying to cover up that shame from childhood. Mom said we were good for nothing, so we've been trying to prove her wrong ever since. Dad wasn't there. So you've been sleeping with every guy you can find until you think you've made up for his lack of presence. What are you trying to do? You're trying to cover your shame. That's why we wear clothes, by the way. That's why we're, we wear clothes. You know why we wear clothes? Because we're ashamed of who we are. Let's be honest. Thank God for clothes. Amen, somebody. Some of you would never leave the house. In fact, most of you shouldn't leave the house without clothes on. There's about five and a half people on the face of the earth that look good naked. The rest of us need clothes. Amen, somebody. It's a symbol, though. The fact that you've got polyester, cotton, fabric, whatever you got on you right now, it's a symbol. It's a symbol we need to cover ourselves. We need to, we need to pretend that we really aren't that bad. That's what we're doing on a daily basis. Some of you guys work for that six-figure income so hard. You know why you're doing it? Because, I don't know, you weren't picked for the baseball team in high school or, or, you, or, or dad said you'd never amount to nothing or, or somebody, somebody shamed you and so you are trying to prove to yourself. Number two, shame keeps us separated. That's what it does. It's it amazing how this became a symbol of shame. This became a symbol of shame, symbol of separation. And all of our masking was really speaking of something really deeper inside. The real virus is not COVID, the real virus is sin. And all that we saw during COVID, separate, stay apart, don't contaminate me. You know what that really was? That was a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. That was, we were at, the world suddenly got religion just in the name of physical safety. Don't give me your germs. 
Because deep down inside, we know that other people can infect us and, and, and we could possibly infect somebody else. And so the mask came on to make sure that we were morally pure, physically pure, so that we wouldn't spread our shame. It was a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Some of you never come to church because you feel ashamed of what you did this week. And, and let me tell you something, maybe you should feel ashamed, but we don't want to shame you when you come in. You know why? Because there's not a single person in this world, in this room right now, who is not a miserable sinner, including this guy. And I'm preaching, which makes me only moderately better than any of you. That's why I'm on the stage. I'm a miserable sinner, I need a savior. How many people have ever heard a friend say, the day I go to church is the day what? Yeah, yeah, the roof caves in, I've heard them. The roof caves in, lightning strikes, the place burns up. Someone said last night, hell freeze is over. I'm like, man, you really know some pagans, don't you? That's a big one. <laughs> it, it's amazing though, that's why people won't come to church. Oh, that'll just make me feel worse which just shows you that the church has kind of lost touch with the message of Jesus. Because the message of Jesus is we're here for people who are far from God. He came for the shamed. He came for the shamed. Number three, shame keeps us stalled. So, some of you haven't moved on from shame. Some of you had the divorce. You haven't moved on. Some of you had the child out of wedlock, you haven't moved on. You haven't, gotten, you haven't gotten cleansing, you can't get yourself over that. That shame from your past, and it stalls you in your present. It holds you back from pursuing God's purposes for you. And I wanna talk to you about, because this is a serious issue in our country. This is a serious issue in the human condition. There's not a single person who's not wrestling with this. The issue behind the issue is shame, and the issue behind the shame is sin. And now we turn to the story of John, the story of the wedding at Cana. And we look at this text a little bit deeper, a little bit closer, because I think that this story is about what Jesus decided to do about our shame. John chapter two, verse one opens like this, on the third day. Somebody say third day. It's a great Christian band. It's also a very important theological point. Jesus does some pretty important things on third days. In fact, you ever do a Bible search of the words third day, you'll see it appears like 400 times in the Bible, third day. Why? Why does, why does John decide to open up the story with on the third day? Do you know why? Because John is not just writing a narrative history, he's writing a theological truth into the text. We gotta see the layers underneath what actually happened. We're, actually, we're being asked to, to be drawn into something that this, this story is pointing to. This is a preview of coming attraction. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Cana is about 10 miles away from Nazareth, where Jesus was from. Cana in the first century, estimates are about 500 people population. Nazareth, about 500, 600 people population. Surrounding towns, 500 or 600 people population. 10 minute walk, 10 minute drives, our time, but really probably a day's walk, their time. So this, this wedding, by the way, first century weddings, lasted not four hours, they lasted two, up to two weeks. People coming and going for two weeks. They were the highlight event of the year in the ancient world. Everybody came, everybody loved it. They partied for two straight weeks. Do you know why? Because they didn't have Netflix. 
They didn't have big screen TVs. They didn't have sporting events. They didn't have Super Bowls. This was the event to go to. And I love verse two. Jesus also was invited to the wedding. See, John the Baptist was a recluse. His predecessor stood out in the wilderness, ate locusts and wild honey. He liked his alone time. I love the fact that Jesus loved a good party. Oh, some of you are not getting that just yet. You need to know that Jesus loves a good party. I know why you're not getting it, because you're New Englanders. You've been trained from birth that church is supposed to be boring. The quieter, the better. The more silent, the more spiritual. My friends, I got news for you. Jesus likes a good celebration. In fact, that's where we're headed to. We're headed to the celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven is gonna be one eternal party. Some of you are not clapping yet. You need to get the Holy Spirit. It's letting you know you should <laughs> there should be joy in the presence of God. I love the fact that Jesus was invited to the wedding. Hey, young people, listen to me very carefully. Single people, pay attention here. If you're gonna get married, Invite Jesus to the wedding. Amen. Invite Jesus. How do I do that, Pastor? Number one, you surrender your life to Jesus. Number two, you make sure that the person of the opposite sex that you marry is surrendered to Jesus. It's the only way. Why do I need to invite Jesus into the wedding? Well, because of verse three. When the wine ran out. No matter who you marry. Oh, young people, I wish you would not zone out right here. Like, I know you're going to. But no matter who you marry, no matter how infatuated you are, no matter how in love, you do know that they have morning breath. I hope you don't know now, but you will then. And they will let you down and they will disappoint you. And no matter who you marry, no matter how spiritual they seem, no matter how cute, no matter how handsome, no matter how sexy, Eventually, the wine runs out. <laughs> Only the married people get that fully. <laughs> Jesus was there. Thank God Jesus was there. Amen, somebody? Verse 4, and Jesus, I'm sorry, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I love Mary. Mary is a good Jewish mother. She reminds me of my Italian grandmother, always interfering. <laughs> they have no wine. And, and Jesus responds. Look at verse four. Woman, let's stop there. <laughs> Any other guys in the house know that when mom says something, you never come back with woman if you want to survive the next three minutes of your life. <laughs> Woman. Well, again, the Bible's a lot deeper than you think. What is happening? Jesus is transitioning from being her son to being our savior. Are you getting this? He's, he's identifying that my time as your child, submissive to you, has come to an end. And now it's time for me to think about what I've come to do. He, he got his disciples in John chapter one. That, that movement has begun. That train has left the station. 
And, and we, got, we got a preview of this in Luke 2, don't we? We get a preview of this when Jesus is 12. Because when Jesus is 12, they go to Passover in Jerusalem and they forget, they lose Jesus. Joseph and Mary lose the Son of God. And they have to go back to the city to try to find him. And how many days did they search? Always pay attention to Scripture. And when they find him, they say, Jesus, what are you doing to us? What does he say? Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? Strange thing for a 12-year-old to say. There's a preview of coming attraction. There's going to come a day, mom and dad, where you're no longer mom and dad. Now you're souls that I need to save. And that's what he's saying. The mission has begun. Saving the souls of men and women across the world and throughout all generations has begun. And then he says, what does this have to do with me? And then the next statement, which I asked us all to say, what does he say? My hour has not yet come. <laughs> what a strange thing to say. The Bible is not written in English 2020 vernac 2023 vernacular. We're asked to be a little bit deeper when we approach this text, it's deep. Mary says they have no wine. Jesus says, my hour's not come. Wouldn't the response typically be something like, mom, I'm a carpenter, not a distiller. But we're asked to dig deeper. Want to go deeper? My hour, whenever John's gospel talks about my hour or Jesus' hour, it was talking about one thing and one thing only, his suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. A three-day period that accomplished God's purpose is to save the world. Nine times in the Gospel of John, Jesus' hour is mentioned, nine times. The first three times is not yet, including right here in John chapter two, verse four. My hour is not yet, three times. My hour is not yet, his hour has not yet come. The last six times, it says his hour had arrived. The last time is mentioned is in John chapter 17, verse one, when Jesus says to the Father, Father, the hour, my hour, has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And he will finish his prayer in John chapter 17, and he will be rested in John 18, and he will be nailed to a cross in John 19, buried and rise again in John chapter 20. When, when Mary talks about wine, Jesus talks about his death. So the question is, what was it about the wine that made Jesus think about his death. I'm gonna tell you, some of you already know where I'm going here. Wine in the Old Testament was a picture of God's wrath. It was a picture of God's judgment. Understand this. It says in Psalm 90, 75, verse eight, the hand, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with what? Foaming what? Wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah 25, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of what? The wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Some of you have been in church long enough to remember that when we come to the Lord's table, or maybe you're from the Catholic background, or when you take the Eucharist, or, or you're coming from other backgrounds, the Lord's table, communion, whatever it is, you remember that when we talk about the cup, we're talking about the wine, which represents his blood, which was shed. You don't get shed blood without suffering. Amen. The wine is a picture of Jesus' death. 
that Jesus was gonna suffer and die. So when Mary brings up the fact that there's no more wine, he talks about his suffering death because he knows that what he has come to do is not to tell us how to live a better life, is not to just try to make good people better people. Jesus Christ did not come to start a religion. Jesus came to save the religious and the irreligious and make every person know that there's only one way to be truly righteous, and that is by placing your faith in his suffering for your sins. That's the gospel. What Jesus did on the cross, I mean, you gotta get this, you don't get this yet, you gotta get it. What Jesus did on the cross was he bore the wrath of God for you. He suffered so that you don't have to. He took the punishment so that you can get his peace. The heart of the gospel is substitution. Jesus took your place on this earth so that you can take his place in heaven. Isn't that good? Oh, that, that's good. And that's something you have never heard in your life before because you were under the impression that church is for good people to learn how to become better people. No, it's not. Church is for bad people. There's not a single person in this room that's good, including me. You say, well, they look religious, faking it. <laughs> Anybody can fake it for an hour, including you. We need salvation. We need somebody to bear the price for our shame. You see what's happening here? So I love what Mary does. Woman, my hour has not yet come. Unfazed, like a good Jewish mother, he said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 5. He said to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. Now, what made Mary do that? If this is, in fact, Jesus' first miracle, why would Mary say that? Why do whatever the carpenter from Nazareth says? Do you know why? It's a very simple answer. She's lived with this guy for 30 years. And she has learned that whatever he says, it's right. That's what you learn when you do life with Jesus for 30 years. Do you understand that this is Mary, the mother of the house, telling people to do what her male son says to do? Do you understand how hard it is for moms to admit that someone other than them knows what's best? <laughs> Am I gonna get out of here alive today? I don't know, but I'm gonna go there anyway. Cause you gotta get this truth inside of you. Do whatever he tells you. I've learned, I've learned 30 years, three decades of living with this boy. I've learned that if he says it, no matter how crazy it sounds, you should do it. So verse six tells us, now nearby there were six stone water jars. Again, deeper than just reading the text. You gotta go deeper with the Bible. You gotta go deeper. Six, the number of man. Revelation 13 tells us that. Stone, which is just compacted earth which is where we come from. God made man out of the dust of the earth. Water jars. Did you know that 60 to 70% of your body is made out of water? This is a picture. This is a story, this is an illustration. It happened really, but it was an illustration as well for what Jesus came to do. And then it says they were there for the Jewish rites of what? Purification. These were washing basins to purify, to purify yourself for public participation in moments like this. 
Now, there's one thing you gotta know about the Jews is that they knew how to wash up. They were the original hand sanitizer obsessed people. Before COVID, they were washing. You gotta understand, this is how you survive as a people for 3,500 years, amen? There's no Philistines kicking around in New York City. There's a bunch of Jews. Do you know why? Because they wash their hands. <laughs> there was water being washed in this, in this, in this wedding. Uh, Matthew, Mark chapter seven tells us how much they washed. Look at this, Matthew, Mark seven, three. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups. I can get on board with that. The washing of pots. I can get on board with that. The washing of copper vessels. I can get on board with that. And dining couches. These people were washing their sectionals. Crazy, right? Washing, 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 washing. Washing, 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 washing. And they had this big old wedding with six water jars. I got four, but just pretend there's two more. Six washing vessels, six water vessels. I already told you that the weddings of the first century in ancient Israel were the event of the, of the year. And people from all the surrounding towns could possibly have been 2,000 plus people coming through the doors at that wedding in Cana that morning, that week, those two weeks. And everybody coming in would do what? And everybody would leave and do what? Wash. I think we gotta get this in our heads just a little bit closer, a little bit, a little bit clearer. Sometimes you wanna be thankful that I'm on video. I want everybody in the front row from right here all the way to the end over here, I want you all to stand up. You're gonna be part of my sermon. Aren't you blessed? You are officially invited to the wedding at Cana. Ma'am, you don't have to if you can. Just You can sit down and just take it easy. I don't wanna put you through this, but you're gonna to have to come on up here and do me a favor. Come on up here, just follow this guy here. Just come on up one at a time. Come up, you just follow the big line. Let's go. We all want to get to lunch at some point today, okay? Yeah, just move over here, just follow. All right, just stick, stick your hand in. Just stick your hand in. Wash up, just dry your hand on there, there you go. If you can do it, ma'am, you don't have to. I, I didn't mean to put you on this pressure, I'm sorry. Oh, thank you so much. All right, just wash your hands, just go ahead, you do it next. You can put both hands in, get crazy with it, there you go. Amen, just dry. Welcome to the wedding at Cana, God bless you. Table 12, table 16, welcome to the wedding at Cana. Gifts to the right, welcome to the wedding at Cana. Table 28, wash up, yeah, welcome to the wedding at Cana. Table 43. We separated you from your husband, amen, okay. <laughs> welcome to the wedding at Cana, just sit back down. Yeah, yeah, welcome to the wedding, just wash up, there you go. Thank you for being here, amen. Oh, the bride and groom are so blessed to have you here today, God bless you. Welcome to the wedding at Cana, just stick your hand in there. Oh, you didn't dip it in there, Michelle. There you go, a little bit better, thank you so much. All right, thank you so much, washing up that hand, thank you very much, good. All right, table 33, amen, table 34. Hey, you weren't invited, no, just kidding. All right, thank you for being here, all right, amen. All right, you get it now. Here, here's what this is. All these people looked like they were washing their hands, but they were just creating a dirt stew. <laughs> just germs in here now. It's just gross water. That's, that's what happens when people wash. This is, not the, this is not the 21st century. Thank God for indoor plumbing. This is the first century. The people worked with their hands. 
They worked with animals. And they came to a wedding. And they dipped their hands in the water thinking they were clean. This is pointing to something beyond what you understand. This is pointing to the law. How did the Jews learn to wash their hands? Because the law told them to do it. So everywhere they went, the law said wash, and they washed. They had to wash before sacrificing, after sacrificing, in, before dinner, after dinner. Wash, 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 wash. Because it was a picture that you were getting clean. But we now know that that actually didn't happen. You just stuck your hand in a, in a stew full of other people's garbage. That's all you did. And here's what you have to understand about the Bible. This is what you have to understand about this moment because that's what it was. It was ritualistic law observance. And the Bible says this in Romans chapter 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You think you're cleaning up, you're just sticking your hand into somebody else's mess. And that's what we do when it comes to religion. We measure ourselves by other people. I might be bad, but I'm not, as good as, I'm not as bad as that person. That's just religious practice, friend. And the scripture is very clear. You're not justified in his sight, since through the law comes the what? The knowledge of sin. And that's what the Jews were doing. This is written by Paul the Apostle, one of the most law-abiding Pharisees that had ever walked on the face of the earth. And he found Jesus and he realized what the purpose of the law was. The purpose of the law was not to save us because it can't save us. The purpose of the law was to point us to the fact that we need something better than the law to save us. And that person is Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, two chapters later, he says this, now the law came in to increase the trespass. In other words, you don't really know how bad you are until you've heard the law. I get pulled over all the time. <laughs> Confession is good for the soul. Do you know why I get pulled over? Because I speed all the time. I've been doing this since I was 16 and a half years old, speeding. And uh, down in Florida, it's bad because they will go from a 45-mile-an-hour zone, from a 75-mile-an-hour zone to a 45-mile-an-hour zone on the same road in a mile. So I get pulled over all the time. And uh, there's one reason other than speeding. The other reason is because I don't bother to look at the speed limit signs. I am, some millennials might say, when it comes to speeding, I am following my heart. Okay, you with me? I'm just doing, this, this feels about right. My heart's good with this speed. And then all of a sudden, I'm, ah. You know that feeling? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Ah. And then the first thought is, Cheryl is gonna kill me. Pull over, and I always have the same conversation with the cops, same conversation every single time. Do you know how fast you were going? No. It felt good. He's following my heart, officer. He's always like, well, you can follow your wallet right to our pay system to $255. Thank you very much. That's what following your heart gets. Amen, somebody. I'm amazed at how we think God's going to be okay with us following our heart when police officers aren't okay with it. Oh, now I'm preaching. Follow, I followed my heart, God. No, you broke the law. You're a sinner. And somebody has to pay for your sin. Some of you don't realize that the problem with the church is not cheap grace. We think the problem with the church is cheap grace. No, the problem with the church is cheap law. 
we're always lowering the standards to just below the level of breathing. I can do this much. That's why when Jesus shows up and he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. He said, you think just not killing people is what it's all about? He says, if you look angrily at your brother, you've killed him in your heart. He raises the law. He said, you think just not cheating on your spouse? That's what God wants? If you've looked lustfully, you might as well gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands. The problem with the church is not cheap grace. The problem with the church is cheap law. And the law's job is not to save us. No, you gotta understand what the Bible is teaching us. The job of the law is not to save us. The job of the law is to show us just how far we are away from God, just how high we are compared to what the speed limit of life is, just how badly we've been breaking the law. Because if we don't come to terms with how bad the condition is, we'll never come to the cure of Jesus Christ. You can't put a Band-Aid on cancer. You need somebody to cut you up, open you up, take it out. The worst thing a doctor could do is say, you got cancer, here's a Band-Aid. And yet we're doing that with our spiritual life every single day. Just trying to put a little bit of religious practice on a heart that is sickened with sin. And then we try to make up for our bad works. That is functional Islam, friends. And that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you can't get saved from obeying the law. You get saved from the one man who obeyed the law and died in your place, Jesus Christ. I want you to write it down so I know you're getting it. The law cannot remove our shame. It can only reveal our shame. That's what we got here. A shame stew. That's what we got. So verse 7, it says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars up. <laughs> fill them up to the brim. Now, there was already water in. There was already dirty water in those jars. And Jesus says, I want you to make sure that everybody sees you add pure water to dirty water, it just becomes what? Dirty water. And they did. They filled it up to the brim. Verse 8 says, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Next four, next four words. So they took it. And then John, the gospel writer, really slows down the frame rate. And he says this in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and that's where verse 9 ends, dot, dot, dot. Look at the tension of the text, because here's what's going down. What did Jesus tell him to do? Are you following this story? <laughs> Troy Scott, would you raise your right hand? I love a volunteer. Come on up here. <laughs> Let's call Troy the master of the feast. They took that water out and they brought it to the master of the feast. <laughs> you know I would never make you do this, right? And I know that Troy would never do this. Do you know why he would never do this? Because Troy knows that I'm not Jesus. My word means nothing. His word means everything. 
You can have a seat. Thank you, Troy, for being up here. You understand what's going on here? They had to take Jesus at his word. Do you know how you get saved? You get saved by taking Jesus at his word. You believe what he said he would do, he did. When he says, no man comes to the Father except through me, you believe it. When he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, you believe it. When he says, repent of your sins and follow me, you believe it. When he says, take up your cross and follow me, you believe it. When he says, if all men hate you for my sake, you rejoice, you believe it because you know that what he says he will do and he's never failed and the bridegroom he drinks that drinks that formerly gross water that has been transformed by Jesus and says everyone serves the best wine first but when the people have drunk freely then the poor wine but you've kept the best till now three points and then we're done that was my illustration that was my introduction <laughs> number one Jesus takes our shame in his suffering Jesus takes our shame in his suffering for our sin. He took what water could not wash off of you and he washed it in his precious blood. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter two that we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. He didn't like the cross, but he went to the cross so that you could be freed from your shame. That's why, that's why Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, he says there's no condemnation now. There's no condemnation. Under you, do you understand? There is no judgment on you for your sin if you are in Jesus Christ. Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do, God did. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and so he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus. Jesus makes the record of your life perfect in the eyes of Almighty God. Point number two, if you're taking notes, Jesus invites us out of ritual and into relationship. Some of you are still in the, in the, in the cesspool of religion. You're still trying to dip your hand in. Let me just clean up my act a little bit. Let me just stop drinking. Let me just stop thinking those thoughts. Let me just stop watching that stuff. Let me just stop saying those things. And you're trying to fix yourself. You can't do it. You'll make a promise to God and by Tuesday evening you will fail because you can't save yourself. And he doesn't ask you to do that. He asks you to take him out his word and believe in him and trust in him. That's the story, that's what this story is about. Point number three, Jesus transforms our shame into security. Transforms our shame, takes it away and he gives us a security that this world cannot give. What's the security? The security that I am now in Christ. I am now in the palm of his hand. And hear me, the scripture says, no man can pluck you out of the palm of God's hand. And that Romans chapter eight chapter, G Paul the apostle ends that chapter. He begins that chapter with no condemnation. He ends that chapter with no separation. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I got security in my life. I can be what I am. I can be what God wants. I can become what God plans me to be. Because he that began a good work in me will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And it doesn't matter 
what I've done in my past. And it doesn't matter what people, how they've shamed me or I've shamed myself. The blood of Jesus is the truest statement of who I now am. I'm washed, I'm clean, and I'm not ashamed.